Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 147. In this episode, we're talking about forgiveness and alternative account with Reverend Dr. Matthew Ichihashi Potts. Reverend Dr. Matthew Ichihashi Potts is Plummer Professor of Christian Morals at Harvard Divinity School and an ordained Episcopal priest serving as the minister in the Memorial Church at Harvard. He's also a co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, and the author of the book that we're excited to discuss on this episode, Forgiveness and Alternative Account, published by Yale University Press. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen, Reverend Daniel Parham, Reverend Dr. Chris Porter, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. Amber, Daniel, and Chris, this was a fantastic conversation with Matt. It was so wonderful to hear his account of forgiveness and kind of push back against a lot of the sort of Christianese and some of the kind of traditional baggage that has been accrued around the way that we talk about forgiveness. What were some of your takeaways from our conversation? I just really appreciated how the account of forgiveness that Matt provides in his book and also in this episode in no way, shape or form makes light of actual harms that are done and has a space for telling the truth about them and taking them seriously, while at the same time also providing a way forward. You know, you know, the issue, the issue of forgiveness is, is complex, right? And it, and it really rides against the, the grain of our dual nature in some ways as Christians who are living in, in our own humanity. Uh, and, and I appreciated that, that Matt drew out kind of the residual outcomes of forgiveness, right? The, the reality that um, forgiveness is something that should be given, but there are also states life that coincide with forgiveness that don't necessarily always mirror the act of forgiveness. For instance, forgiving does not necessarily mean reconciliation in one in one sense of being reconciled to the person who potentially harmed you, but it is a freeing, uh, as, as Matt says, it's a freeing from the act in of itself. And so th- there's this complexity that I think he divulges in really well uh, that allows us to piece together some of the challenges that happens when we're faced, as Christians particularly, when we're faced with a decision to forgive, though the ramifications of that forgiveness may not fit cleanly into what we desire forgiveness to look like. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate Matt's uh, engagement, not just with the, the narrow topic of forgiveness, uh, but of the implications that, of that. Uh, so we range from talking about trauma and memory uh, through to literature uh, and modern engagements in social media and uh, really thinking about the implications of what forgiveness looks like uh, in those spaces and uh, new ways forward for healthily thinking about forgiveness in those spaces. And as a big time Harry Potter fan, it was wonderful to chat a little bit with him about Harry Potter, given the prominent podcast that he is a part of. And with that, here's our conversation with Reverend Dr. Matthew Ichihashi Potts. Well, Reverend Dr. Potts, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. And you can call me Matt, please. 
Well, well, Matt, we're really excited to talk about your book on forgiveness. And how about we begin by talking about this alternative account against which you present your thesis? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so an an alternative account is a subtitle of my book. Uh, I had wanted a different title. I wanted to call it Morning Forgiveness. Maybe we can talk more about that in a minute. I thought that it was a good title. My publisher didn't. So we called it Forgiveness, an alternative account. But the account against which I am arguing with that, or, or the reason I decided I wanted to write the book is because in conversations with students, and you know, I, I also um, am a pastor and had, was working in parish ministry. And so in conversation with parishioners, it seemed to me that that the way I got, I became worried that the way that we practice forgiveness in Christian communities, or the way that we talk about forgiveness or think about forgiveness, somehow works to, to, to move the moral responsibility for, for redeeming wrong from the wrongdoer to the victim, right? So like if, if we have a command to forgive, and we do, we see this in scripture, we see this in the New Testament, if we've been told that we must forgive or we ought to forgive, th- that's a victim's responsibility, right? And so suddenly like the responsibility for repairing harm falls on the person who has been harmed, right? And that, that can bear out as a lot of pain and hurt for, for victims, right? Um, especially when they struggle to do that, when they struggle to forgive their their offenders, right? They can feel great shame or great pain because they cannot do what they've been told to do by their tradition or by their community. And so somehow the, the person who, who committed this wrong, right, is waiting in the wings saying, oh, why don't you forgive me? You ought to forgive me and has like this power over the victim, a, per, a perpetuating power over the victim. And the victim is in this place of, of moral responsibility to undo what the other one did. And, you know, I think we can think about that theologically. I can we think about that morally. I think pastorally, what I was seeing is that it bore out as a lot of pain in people um, and a lot of shame in people and good people, good people who wanted to be faithful and who 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 were trying to live as deeply and as fully into the into the Christian teachings as they could. And I started thinking, like, are we thinking about this the right way? Is this what Jesus had in mind when Jesus was talking about this? Now I don't pretend to know the mind of Jesus in my in my book, but I thought there was enough, I mean, just from my own pastoral and even public experience, just watching sort of how public acts of forgiveness play out in a, in a national or global stage, it started, asking, started me asking the question, like, is there another account of forgiveness that we can give? Is there another way we can think about what is actually going on or what ought to be going on when we think about, think about the act of forgiveness in Christian practice and thought? Thank you so much, Matt. Uh, I'm just in, really interested in than what the alternative is. So you said that you wanted to actually name the the book um, Mourning for Forgiveness. So what is it that is then being mourned? Um, because that seems to still place the position of forgiveness on the, on the person who has been wronged uh, in that case. Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm going to give like a super long and like circuitous answer and try to arrive at it eventually. And if I don't, you know, ask it again and tell me that I didn't arrive at it in time. And you're right. I mean, I think forgiveness is still a moral action. It's still something that we do ask victims and that that the Christian tradition does invite victims into, I mean, maybe invites too soft a word, does like exhort, command victims to come into relationship with. I think it's the easiest way for me to get there is to try to, to say what I'm speaking against more specifically than I did already, right? And And I think 
um, one way I can illustrate this is, is through like one of these public examples of forgiveness. It's actually the example with which I start the book, right? So in 2015, a white supremacist, your listeners will know this example, a white supremacist named Dylan Roof walked into um, Mother Emanuel AME in, in Charleston, South Carolina, joined the evening Bible study and murdered nine people, right? Went to his arraignment, he was caught, he went to his arraignment, absolutely unrepentant no sense of any kind of penitence or apology or anything. And some of the families at his arraignment, he was on like closed caption TV into the courtroom. And some of the families, it's important to say not all of the families, but a few of the families or surviving family members of those who have been murdered offered forgiveness to, to Dylan Roof, right? Now this was, this was played out in the national media as like, look at the Charleston families forgiving, look at this great example of forgiveness. And I remember in 2015 reading an, an article um, I think it was in New York Magazine, but I was reading an article, and the article is actually an interview of Ta-Nehisi Coates, the, like the, the public intellectual, great thinker, a person I admire a great deal. Um, and he was being interviewed, and he was watching this scene, like a news report of these families offering forgiveness over the shoulder of the interviewer on a TV in the restaurant where they were talking or whatever. And the, the quotation that's in the article is Coates looks up and at this scene of forgiveness, and he says, is that real? I question the realness of that. Right. And now I want to know, like, why does he question the realness of that? What does he think is unreal about that? Or what is this? What is he suspicious of in what what these folks were doing? And I think what he's suspicious of is that is that he could not imagine. I don't want to speak for him. Right. But I think I can inhabit that same disbelief. I think a lot of us who saw those actions could could understand that sense of disbelief just because, like, how could you how could one in that? moment of mourning say to the person who has done this who is completely unrepentant you know it's okay i'm not angry anymore like we're fine i forgive you right that sounds unbelievable and i think it sounds unbelievable because it is unbelievable because if you look at the actual statements of the people who are offering forgiveness that's not what they were saying so the people who offered forgiveness said things like i acknowledge that i am very angry and i will always be angry but i forgive you and they said things like uh, Dylan Roof has no part of my life anymore. The system handles him now. He, he is no part of our life. We need to move on. We need to, we need to deal with this and live with this thing, which has happened to us, which we cannot undo. And Dylan Roof is not part of that. I said what I needed to say and no more. I don't want to deal with him anymore. Right. Or they said things like, you know, the national media took up this narrative of forgiveness because they don't want to see our anger. They don't wanna see that we are angry. We are angry. There is still a lot of stuff going on that's wrong in this country. And the fact that we forgave doesn't mean that we don't think that's true. It means something else, right? So here are the things that I think forgiveness doesn't mean to be clear, but which I think, <clears throat> but which I think it gets, which, you know, which I think it gets sort of collapsed into, right? Forgiveness, I think as we think about it colloquially, you, we usually associate it with like giving up one's anger not being angry anymore. Like you say to somebody, I forgive you, it means I'm not angry anymore. That's not what these families said. These families said, I am still angry, but I forgive you, right? Or we think that forgiveness means we use it as a synonym for reconciliation, right? Like, like I forgive you means, okay, let's restore relationship. Reconciliation is a good thing. It's a goal that we might have, but it's not always warranted, especially when the person who has harmed us is unrepentant, is still a danger to us. Like we don't have to reconcile with them. Why are we to reconcile with them, right? Maybe forgiveness isn't the same thing as reconciliation, right? Forgiveness is not moving on and pretending like, or, or believing that this thing never happened. Like it's actually insisting something terrible happened. When you say to someone, I forgive you, 
what's implied in that statement is a judgment because you don't forgive a virtue. You don't forgive something good somebody did. When you say, I forgive you, the subtext of that is you harmed me, right? So we have this language about forgive and forget, but actually forgiveness is a form of memory. To say, I forgive you says I have been harmed. So these are the things I want to say about what forgiveness is, right? It, that it can accommodate anger, that if you're angry with the person that you hurt you, that's still forgiveness, right? And if you aren't ready to reconcile with the person who forgave you, there is still a possibility for forgiveness. And if you insist that you're not ready to move on, there is still a possibility of forgiveness. So what's left, right? That's the question, right? Chris, I think your question is, okay, after you do all this taking apart, like what's left, I think what happens is we arrive at a de definition of forgiveness, which looks a lot like what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, which is love your enemy, right? It means in response to harm, choose a way forward, which does not include retaliation, which does not include doing what to your enemy, what they did to you, right? That doesn't mean that you don't have to be, you can't be angry at your enemy. It doesn't mean that you need to reconcile with your enemy. It doesn't mean that you need to give up your claim for some redress from your enemy, but it might mean that I'm not gonna hurt you the way you hurt me, right? And I think, I think for me, that really is what forgiveness boils down to and where it boils down to. There's a, a person that I, I kind of read in the book, a, a 18th century moral philosopher and bishop named Joseph Butler. And he has all these sermons, moral sermons on kind of moral, things. Um, and he has two sermons, one which which circulate around this topic. One's called On Resentment and the other one On Forgiveness. And and he's, he builds the whole of the two sermons around that one line from the Sermon on the Mount, which is love your enemies. And he says things like, "It's in, love can have anger. Love can be angry. Like you can be angry at people you love. In fact, he says anger is a necessary part of what it means to be human because anger is how we know we've been harmed. And if we didn't know we were harmed, we could not protect ourselves or others. So this is actually, anger is okay. He says, what's wrong is, is abusing anger, doing the wrong things with your anger. And I think that's one of the problems with forgiveness. I think that we have, over time, we have kind of internalized Christian morals and made them about what we feel rather than what we do. And I think Christian ethics should be about what we do with our feelings, how we act in the world, not how we feel, especially given what we know now, you know, when you think about trauma, right? When you think about when people are harmed deeply or wounded gravely, like, Emotions are volatile in the wake of trauma, right? And so a person who has been deeply wounded might not be angry at their offender. They might not be angry at their offender for 10 years, but they might wake up one morning and suddenly they are angry again because that's the way trauma works. And I would hate to say to that person after 10 years, oh, sorry, you lost all your forgiveness because you're angry again. On the contrary, what I want to say is like, that's part of what it means to process trauma. As a pastor, what I want to say is let's process your trauma in a healthy way as a, you know, a Christian moral theologian, what I want to say is what's important is not whether or not you feel angry. I don't want to police your emotions, especially in the wake of trauma. What's important is how do you treat the one who hurt you in return? Can you imagine a way to love your enemy? And then we get to the really messy questions. Okay, then what does love look like? What does loving your enemy look like, right? If loving your enemy is what forgiveness is, you start to get some possibilities for love being different things. It might include anger. It might not include reconciliation. It might, you know, it might include speaking truth and condemnation, right? Those things can still be loving in this kind of more capacious understanding or a different understanding of what forgiveness is and what it's actually speaking to. I think that's so helpful uh, to frame it in that way. And I, I wonder also for uh, the, the life of a Christian that there's these dualities of uh, being a spiritual being, but then also being an emotional being and how they are intertwined. And, um, 
depending upon what tradition you come from, there's more emphasis on emotion and less emphasis on emotion. And I can also understand how that may impact um, someone's view towards forgiveness. Uh, leaning into a little bit more of what you, you mentioned, Matt, about like reconciliation, recompense, I, I, I want to put it kind of in a systematized way. So I think about in an American context, right, our, um, our criminal justice system and, and even touching into what you were mentioning, right? No one would say that Dylan Roof should be walking the streets um, freely. And so um, how do we even reconcile the sense of uh, legal justice with the sense of uh, a sense of spiritual justice? And, and how, how do you fuse those together? Because I think we've seen a lot of tension points along forgiveness in, in those areas, the death penalty being a, a tension point. Um, that we've seen individuals work with. So we'd love your thoughts on that. And if you cover any of those kind of systematized ways uh, that seem to kind of bump up against uh, how a Christian may perceive forgiveness and the outcomes of that. Thanks, Daniel. That's a really complicated question, right? Because then you get into the the really thorny kind of moral questions. Okay, like, okay, fine. Christian love, love your enemy. Uh, bless those that curse you, et cetera. Like, what does that look like in practice? And how do we keep folks safe? Right. And and that's an important question. I think I think one of the things I'm trying to do in digging through all this, though, is really to uncover how deeply these certain kind of strands of thinking about what forgiveness is or what justice is um, play out in very unjust ways in American criminal justice. Right. And so, you know. When Jesus is talking about love your enemy, the turn of the mount, he's talking about like he's speaking in reference to um, the Hebrew Bible commands of you know an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You have heard it said, um, uh, love your friend and hate your enemy, an eye for an eye, and tooth for a tooth, etc. Right? Um, and that 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 law of like for like, of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, in Latin became known as the lex talionis. So I talk about this in in the book, and it's interesting how deeply like how like almost to our bones, that sense of justice forms what we think justice is, right? Like if you hurt me, I hurt you back. Or if you take something from me, you have to pay me back. Like this idea of like for like is very basic to our intuitions and our instincts. Um, so much so that like we, that's what we say when we say like justice is done, right? Like, like if you watch movies or like superhero movies, like what justice looks like is the person getting exactly what they did to somebody else done to them, right? Um, but the thing is, is like in practice in ancient Israel, and this comes from the code of the Hammurabi's code as well, like nobody actually ever practiced it this way. There's not a lot of anthropological evidence that anybody ever plucked out anybody's eye who accidentally plucked out the other person's eye, right? Like what happened almost immediately is that, you know, if, if this is kind of like a, an economic exchange model, like I give and you give back, right? Like almost immediately there was this currency exchange where the rabbis, for example, said, well, we're not actually gonna cut off your hand. We're gonna make you pay some amount of money and the money's gonna stand in for the harm you caused, right? And what has happened over time, for example, in the American criminal justice system is that crimes or sins or whatever offenses have come to carry penalties, which are just understood as justice. But if we step back for any amount of time, they're just like outlandishly unjust, right? Like lifetime imprisonment for possession of for possession of marijuana or something like that. Like these, these hugely draconian criminal justice laws, which are supposed to be justice because, oh, you did wrong, you gotta pay it back. 
and we use this language, you got to pay your debt to society, right? Like this idea of giving and taking, paying and paying back structures our justice so deeply that it's hard for us to imagine a way out of like what justice might look like if it weren't some kind of retaliation, right? So if we did want to let go of retaliation, there's more to say about retaliation and the law of like for like if you want to, because I, I actually believe what Jesus says when Jesus says this is not the abrogation of the law, but the fulfillment of the law. So we can talk more about that if you want. But I think for me, I think what's important in a situation like this, especially one where we do need to render judgment and keep people safe, is to think what, you know, if we're confining somebody or punishing somebody or disciplining somebody, what is the reason behind that discipline or that punishment? Are we doing it as payback? Are we doing it because we think our retaliatory action through some magical thinking is going to restore what was lost to the other person? Or are we doing it because it actually serves the best interests of the community at large to do this to this person, right? And I think if that becomes your standard, if like imagining a way forward becomes the standard by which we think about what justice is, then most of the criminal justice practices that we have in this country, not only are they highly racialized, but they're highly ineffective because they don't actually imagine a way forward. They keep us mired in further harm and further hurt and the further wounding of communities, right? And this is, I mean, to go back to, to Chris's earlier question, this is why I wanted to call it warning for forgiveness, right? Because for me, when I think about forgiveness as a non-retaliatory action, what forgiveness does is it turns away from the magical thinking that would say there is some retaliatory act which can bring back what has been taken from me, right? What it does instead is it says, this has been taken from me, I have been harmed, and now I must move into the future with the fact of this loss, right? And so forgiveness becomes a good in the same way that mourning is a good, not because it feels really great, but because what it is, is it's realistic. It says, I have been harmed and I can't, I mean, listen to these trusted families. Like you can, you can never give back what you took from me, but we need to figure out a way to move on. And so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna move on because we cannot pretend that there's any way to get back what you took from us, even by doing the same to you that you did to us. That sense of like accepting what has been lost and deciding encouraged to face the future in the reality of that loss, that looks like mourning, right? And I think a justice system, which was more willing to acknowledge that it cannot bring back what was lost, but still has the responsibility to try to build a future. I think a lot of the retaliatory sort of and retributive sort of structures that, that guide the way we think about justice might shift. Now, it doesn't mean that anybody that nobody will ever be imprisoned, I don't think. It doesn't mean nobody will ever be like um, restrained or that no people will always, you know, will, will not have to be constrained or restrained in some ways. But I think if the, if the guiding principle behind whether or not we do that is what's the best thing for the community at large going forward so that there can be flourishing for everyone in the future and not we need to do to them what they did to somebody else or we need to make them suffer because they made somebody else suffer, then the possibilities for what's available shifts. I think the other thing that's important in this, and this is something I kind of touched on in my second chapter, is that, you know, one of the things that, that I think is beautiful about the Christian tradition and the way it leans into these concepts of repentance and forgiveness is not only because it provides a way forward in the wake of great harm and great loss, but also it acknowledges that all of us are mired in this complex world where we cannot do the right thing all the time, or where the options before us are not ones which which all of which, you know, any of which can be virtuous, that, that sometimes the options we have are ones which are going to cause harm to others. And we have to take action. Um, and so then we need forgiveness too. We need to 
we need, this is Martin Luther, the freedom of the Christian. We need to know that God's grace is, is infinite and know that we can be forgiven for us to act. Because otherwise, if we only acted when we knew we were acting purely, we could never act. The reason we can act is because we trust in God's forgiveness. And so we do things like, you know, confine someone or render a judgment. And we, instead of celebrating how great we were for rendering that judgment, we have to instead like be repentant and say like, this is what we felt we had to do and come before God saying, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that I had to do this. We are sorry that we had to do this, but within this fallen world, we have limited options and we're not going to tr transform what is a tragic fact into a virtuous act. I love how you bring up the, the very legitimate point that retaliation in and of itself kind of assumes that you can get back what somebody has taken from you um, as if it's just replaceable, as if, you know, a million dollars is somehow going to replace that singular life that was taken um, and, and actually pushing away from those, pushing away from that philosophy of forgiveness and what justice is actually does more justice to the harm that was committed and the singularity of that. So I think it's just really helpful and also therapeutic as well. But what I'm wondering is we talked a little bit about the justice system and concepts of forgiveness and justice uh, relative to that. I'm wondering about um, social media, <laughs> uh, which is another very common space where we dialogue with one another. Um, and it's a place where you see a lot of retaliation. Um, it's a place where you see a lot of attempts at justice that are, whether they're silencing or they're sort of like a mob mentality, uh, where we just kind of hate on everybody. What does it mean to think about practicing forgiveness when there's harms that are done to you on a social platform like that? Or how do we perhaps read what each other writes um, with a charitable spirit that is not quick to retaliation in the comment section? Yeah. Uh, thanks, Amber. Uh, those are great questions. I mean, I think the first thing I would say is that, you know, under the kind of account that I want to give, forgiveness can be angry and forgiveness does not need to be in relationship with the enemy. It doesn't have to reconcile, right? And I mean, social media relationships are complicated and they're their own kind, but I think it's okay to get angry on, on social media or to get angry because of things that happen to you on social media or things that people say, or to be hurt by things that people say on social media. I think it's okay to decide that you don't have to block folks or to decide that you do not need to be in relationship with these folks, that, that reconciliation is not something that you're ready for because you don't trust them not to hurt you, right? I think the question becomes, okay, how am I gonna to react to my anger, right? So another way to think about the idea of forgiveness is like, is how do we act forgivingly to think of it as an adverb, right? Like, and that would be like, okay, so what would it mean to love my enemy in this situation, right? While also loving myself, while also protecting myself, honoring the anger which is inside me, which is signaling to me that harm has been done, maybe honoring my reluctance to reconcile because this person has not earned it. Like those are things that pastorally, and I think theologically we can, we can honor while also saying, how do I actually intend the good for that other person? Wish the flourishing of that other person. Sometimes wishing the flourishing of the other person is you got to tell them the truth about what they have done. Right now, I think you, 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 Concern about this is is Twitter the best place to tell that truth, right? Is that going to be the medium by which a person, by which you can by which you can like tell the truth to this person, or are there other ways? Or is the best way that you have to love a person who's 
you know, one of the things that I think that makes social media available to be abused in this way is because it is kind of quasi anonymous. Like you might know who you're talking to, but they're not actually in your life. They're not face to face. They don't actually have to deal with the personal relationship with you and like the repercussions of hurting you in, in that direct sense. Like I think in some cases, wishing the flourishing, given your own finite capacities as a single human being, wishing the flourishing of the other person might be entirely consonant with you just not interacting with them anymore. Right. And like, and, and, and uh, yeah, and just kind of like not having that relationship. Right. Um, even that, even that kind of limited social media relationship. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know, I'm not sure I've answered your question, Amber, but I, I think that something about like affirming one's own right to be angry and affirming one's own right to decide which relationships we want to keep and who we trust, I think can govern all of our relationships, whether they happen sort of digitally or, or interpersonally. The real, again, the, the, the forgiveness question doesn't come from like whether you're angry or whether you want to reconcile. I think the real question becomes like, how do I, how do I express intent flourishing for the other? How do I express love for the other? And I think there are some limited ways. I think, you know, one of the things I think about in the book is sort of in like really grave, this is not social media kind of conflict, but like really grave post-conflict situations, like where, where communities have been warring or in active violent conflict and where there are no longer any claims of innocence because people have hurt each other back and forth, back and forth for generations, right? I mean, in, in situations like that, I mean, there's a, there's a, a Mennonite peacemaker and, and peace studies professor who I talk about in a book named John Paul Lederach, who's an amazing person who's written great things and worked in active conflict situations. And he writes about negotiating these like immediate post-agreement situations where two warring peoples or, or communities, people who have been literally killing each other, maybe for generations, have just come to like a political agreement that they're going to stop for a bit, right? And, and what he worries about is like, bureaucratically, institutionally, once that agreement happens, like governments are like, okay, next step, let's go. You, you agreed, you're not gonna hurt each other. What's next, what's next? And he talks about in that moment, the gift of pessimism, right? Where like, you need to acknowledge that no one on the ground believes that this peace can hold, that no one trusts anybody else. And he's like, it's important that you do that because by doing that, by acknowledging that in these people, you are acknowledging what they've been through. If you show up and say to someone who's been gravely harmed, okay, what's next? Let's, we're, we're on the choo-choo train to healing. Like, we're, here we go, right? All that does is erase the experience, the grave experience of harm that they've felt. And he's like, what you actually have to do is just be willing to sit with them in their pessimism, in their mistrust, in their harm, and acknowledge it, and acknowledge that they might still hate their enemy, right? That, that they are not acting on it now, but not hate, but that, that they hate their enemy. And one of the, you know, <clears throat> he has sort of secular writings on peace building. But in one of his more devotional Christian writings, he says, this is what's so important about Jesus for, for Christian peace builders, because you might hate your enemy, but you still love Jesus. And you know that Jesus loves your enemy. And that can be the thing that keeps you from acting upon your hatred, right? And so like when you get into these spaces or even interpersonal ones, right, where you cannot bring yourself to love your enemy, because that is, a, that's a, we are, we have fallible human hearts that are of limited capacity, right? And we love as much as we can and no further, and that's okay. I mean, this is one of the gifts of Jesus. One of the gifts of God is that when we cannot love our enemy because they've hurt us too much, there can be a break in our actions upon our anger, our hatred, because we still love Jesus. And because Jesus loves our enemy for Jesus' sake, we don't act on that violence, right? And so, I mean, this is what I mean about sort of like thinking about what we do rather than what we feel. And thinking about the resources that the Christian tradition has, 
especially ones like our relationship to Christ and like our relationship to the Holy Spirit and like our relationship to God, where which can provide the break in our hatred, provide like the cog in the wheel of like this kind of relentless retributive cycle of violence that gets a person to pause and say, I am not going to act upon this. I am going to try to act in a way that that's loving, even if it's not, even if it's not for the sake of my enemy, even if it's for someone else's sake. I think uh, Amber's question about social media is really interesting in light of, you know, the current cancel culture situation that we find ourselves in. And I think it's worth addressing the hippogriff in the room uh, and thinking about J.K. Rowling in particular and how Harry Potter fans have responded to her tweets. And it's interesting, you know, thinking about forgiveness in this way, because a lot of LGBTQIA fans hold a lot of deep resentment and perhaps hatred uh, towards Rowling and some struggle with, you know, how to continue to have uh, a part in the fandom. Uh, it's a real struggle for a lot of people. I participate in an academic Harry Potter conference at Chestnut Hill in Philadelphia every year. And there's concern about, you know, should we keep doing this? And it's really interesting to think about, you know, this question in the light of the way that you're proposing forgiveness. And I'm curious, since you are the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, when you guys had that episode on uh, Chamber of Secrets, you did that whole episode on forgiveness, and it was specifically that mudblood uh, chapter, pardon my French. Can you tell us a little bit about what you have learned about forgiveness from J.K. Rowling's work, as ironic as that might be. Uh, yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, we we just recorded a special episode to coincide with the release of this <laughs> this book, uh, so you'll hear more about these. But I'll, you know, you know, for your listeners who who might also be listening to, to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, I'll get a sneak peek. I mean, I actually think you know one of the things that's tricky about this, and I actually in my book, I actually do look at literature a lot to try to illustrate this idea or try to draw out this idea of what forgiveness might be or what it might mean for Christians, partly because, you know, because I am kind of criticizing a Christian tradition, which is formulated it one way, at least. I mean, I say that it's formulated it one way for the past maybe 300 years across the history of Christian theology. It's been a much more complicated concept. Um, but in recent writing, I think novels get at this really well. Um, they get it like the tensions and difficulties of loving your enemy and rejecting retaliation and and what that feels like somatically what it feels like affectively in a really rich way which is something i wanted to explore which is why i turned to novels and and i think the harry potter novels do that too i mean you can find great examples in the harry potter novels of folks like for example when the dursleys leave for privet drive right at the end, Vernon and Petunia are still as like cruel and as they've always been. I mean, especially Vernon, right? And and Harry's just like, you know, just go, right? Just go. And then Dudley comes up and there's this like quasi sort of maybe we can be friends kind of moment, like, you know, take it easy, big D or whatever. Like there's like this moment of like, I don't think you're a waste of space. And they, but but there's no strong sense that they are suddenly reconciled. Certainly this family is not reconciled. Right. Certainly Harry and his aunt and uncle have not been reconciled, even if we consider that brief moment of like slightly different behavior in Dudley, a moment of reconciliation. Th there has not been a kind of reconciliation there. And there's obviously still a lot of anger. I think that the Dursleys are angry because they have to leave and they're they're taking that out on Harry. I think Harry, Harry in this episode feels a lot of resentment towards them for their hemming and hawing for everything they've done to them. But he does everything he can to keep them safe right he doesn't he, he does that he has been abused consistently throughout his childhood 
right? We talked about this on the podcast as well. I mean, I think that the, the it's a children's novel, so it plays some of the abuse kind of for a, a, in a fantastical way. But like Harry's abused throughout his childhood, and he has he can walk away and be like, you know what, you guys are on your own because everything you did to me, you deserve what you're about to get, right? But that's not what he does. He says these folks are going to protect you. I hope you listen to them because I want you to be protected, right? To me, that's like an example of loving your enemy. These people have been cruel to him since he was since he can remember. And when given the opportunity to revisit some cruelty upon them or to protect them, even in a way that they don't want, even in a way that they are uncomfortable with that that causes them harm, some harm too, he helps them and and helps them uh, get away from from what could be like this terrible visit from Voldemort or the Death Eaters, right? And so like there are moments like this in the Harry Potter series, right? Where where we see interactions between characters, where we can see how the movements of love don't necessarily feel good or feel like warm and fuzzy or don't look rosy, but where people who maybe don't like each other actually do act in the, one another's interest. People who are suspicious of each other or who can't trust each other in one sense still do not cause harm to, to others. Those are the moments I think in the series which open a window into what a kind of reformulated forgiveness might look like. So picking up on your interest in literature and you've already mentioned your interest in Harry Potter, but your first work was looking at Cormac McCarthy's literature and especially in the sacramental uh, engagement there. And earlier you, you, you've uh, made reference to uh, the engagement of forgiveness uh, with remembering uh, and and for many trauma victims, they can't move past the point of trauma and so therefore it becomes this, this memory which keeps coming back over and over again. I'm interested because Recur has in, in his um, memory history and forgetting has this sort of weird coda at the end where he kind of goes, I don't know what to do with forgiveness. Is it forgetting? Is it um, some form of memory? What do we do with this? Uh, and a few people have suggested that actually one way forward for um, both Recur um, and unlike uh, what Miroslav Volf suggests, but to work, walk with Recur is to say that uh, new narratives and new stories provide the opportunity f- to be able to process and to be able to engage in that narrativized process of forgiveness, um, which isn't just a simple forgetting. So I'm interested in in your work between narrative and forgetting. How do our public narratives, um, how do the, the stories that we tell, uh, be that Cormac McCarthy or J.K. Rowling, how, how do they uh, inform our structures of forgiveness? How, how do they um, speak into our public life uh, when tragedies occur, such as uh, Dylan Ruth? Yeah, that's a really, a really good question, a really complicated one. And, and I think, I mean, the only short answer I have is imperfectly, right? Um, I, I think your reading of Record and, and Wolf, I think those are both right. I think one of the things Record talks about at the end of that very big book uh, is he talks about, um, he says, you know, what we call forgetting takes different forms, right? There's one kind of forgetting, which is just like, like, just like the obliteration, like it just, it's not even in our mind anymore. It's nowhere to be accessed. That's one kind of forgetting. There's also a kind of forgetting, which is like, it's there, but we don't think about it. Like we could choose to remember, but we don't choose to remember because we focus on other things, which is a different kind of forgetting. That's not pretending it never happened. It's, as you say, kind of suggesting that we might build a story out of other facts or other ideas, right? And, and build new stories so we can move forward. Now, one of the other people I read in this book is a, 
a mid 20th century French philosopher named Vladimir Jankelevich, and he's kind of like Ricoeur and these other 20th century French philosophers. He writes very like circuitous and complicated and difficult stuff. And so he, and he kind of enjoys, um, enjoys hyperbole and like taking the most extreme logical case. But one of the things he says is that, nope, you, there can't be any kind of forgetting with forgiveness because the only thing that, that, that forgiveness requires is the existence of sin, right? Like, you, like I said before, you can't forgive a virtue, you have to forgive a sin. And if I forgive, if, 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 you know, if I, if I've forgotten what you did and I forgive you because of that, then that means the thing has kind of gone away and I, I'm not forgetting anything. It's just kind of gone away. Or if I tell a story whereby the thing you did to me is incorporated into a larger narrative of good news or of happy ending, then he's like, then you've just transmuted this thing that was harm into good and you've erased it. And so that's not really forgiveness. He's, he's doing this kind of thought ex experiment where he wants to make forgiveness absolutely pure in order to show us what's at stake in the concept. Now, I think he's doing that performatively. I think that he knows that no actual forgiveness is pure. But what he's worried about is that if we tell our stories too happily, we will erase harms too easily, right? And that the virtue of forgiveness, he says, is not that it forgets, not that it tells a good story, but that it forces us to reckon with the bad version of the story, which is again, why I want to think about it as mourning. And so this is why I, the novels I look to in this book, and you might even say somebody like Cormac McCarthy, who is not the most cheery author, <laughs> right? Like I, all these novels and the novels I look at in my book, which are uh, The Buried Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro, Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, La Rose by Louise Erdrich, and Beloved by Toni Morrison. All these books deal about, with forgiveness, but they also deal with deep, deep grief, deep, deep mourning, the kinds of grief that we have to live with that we can't pretend never happened, right? And I think that's also a kind of storytelling, right? There's also a storytelling which, while incorporating the facts of the past into a narrative of the present and trying to turn towards a future that we might live together, also you know, determines to say, but we live together in the ruins of something that we have lost. We live together, we build something new in the ruins of something we've lost in the wake of something we can't get back. Um, and that's also, I mean, that's also part of the way I read the Christian story. I mean, with the, the empty tomb moment and, and the idea of Jesus going before us and calling us after him and the call to discipleship is one where like we, you know, the resurrection isn't an undoing, right? Jesus has scars and Jesus is, is returned in some sense, but also not really because then he ascends and he walks through walls and he's not with them the way he was before. He is calling them into a new form of life. Whatever happened to them, him, and the betrayals of theirs that contributed to what happened to him cannot simply be undone. The promise is that they can, there are still things to do, that they can still have new life and continue in relationship to him, but it's gonna be different. And one of the differences is they can't deny the fact that he was crucified and the tomb was empty, even if he has been restored to them in some sense. And so that's kind of like the, the narrow middle path I'm trying to walk between a happy ending form of retelling the story where the bad facts of the past are retold in a way that we're like, but that eventually led to a good ending. So all's well that ends well. I think that's too simple a solution. I think the story I want to tell or that I want to lift up is the kind that says, no, we, we, there is a way forward because we can live in God and live in Christ, but there are some things that can't be undone. And we have to tell the story fully facing the losses that we've incurred. So given that Jesus says, you know, to forgive, not just seven times, but 70 times seven, 
Um, if forgiveness is non-retaliatory action, what does it mean to do something that many times by not doing something? You know what I mean? Giving your account of forgiveness. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. And one of the tricky things about the New Testament is that, is that there are lots of commandments about forgiveness given by Jesus. And the, the conditions for them are different in a lot of situations. Like sometimes there's repentance first, sometimes they're not. Sometimes, you know, it's 70 times seven. Sometimes it's, you know, because your father forgives you too. Like there's all these, there are all these different, there are all these different conditions. And, and so trying to develop kind of consistency among these teachings gets really tricky. To me, the way I read that, at least to make it fit with my own teaching, which is maybe a sign of I'm doing something wrong. But the way I read that is that this idea that we can love our enemy is something that's always available to us right? It doesn't mean every action is always available to us, right? But to intend the good for the, end, my, the one who has harmed me and to, to, to try to act in that direction of the good for them, there's always some action available to us. Like I said, sometimes it might be just telling them the truth about how much they've harmed us, right? And sometimes it might be like getting far enough away from them so I don't act upon my anger impulsively, and that's protecting them, right? Like, I think, I mean, this might be defined in the category too broadly, but I think we need to take seriously, like just how, just, just how deep and natural and strong feelings of vengeance are when you've been harmed, right? And I think we need to recognize and, and, and name in people sort of the moral significance of deciding not to act in vengeance and to make a choice not to act in vengeance. That choice is an act. That choice is the, the loving act in many ways. Um, and I, I want to encourage folks to think that anytime you make that choice, you've acted and and, that, and you're always able to make that choice. It reminds me a lot, I don't know if you in your research um, stumbled upon Soren Kierkegaard's works of love, uh, but <laughs> they're laughing because I don't know that there's ever been an episode in the history of this podcast where I've not mentioned <laughs> that guy's name. Anyway, um, so Soren Kierkegaard's works of love, he actually has a couple of sections where he talks about forgiveness and um, a lot of people hate on what he says about forgiveness, but I, I actually think it's pretty similar to what you were saying. And especially Ricoeur, I think Ricoeur probably got some inspiration from him, but he uses the analogy of putting something behind your back. And he explains that this is, this is not like sweeping something under the rug, as we would say, where you just kind of yeah. say like, ah, oh, it didn't happen, whatever. But this idea of putting something behind your back is saying, no, it's a thing. <laughs> Like it happened, yep. it's there, but I'm yeah. going to put it here behind me. And that doesn't mean I'm going to forget it in the sense of like, yeah. it vanishes, it will still be there, but it's not this thing that I'm looking at in my face. Um, that's prohibiting right. me from actually moving forward. And it could be that that's, if it's more of a mild offense or whatever, where you think that reconciliation with the person is possible, it could be that you say, I'm choosing not, I'm choosing to look at you without this thing in between us. Like I'm choosing yeah. to, to set that thing aside when I look at you. Right. If it's not a situation where that would be safe, <laughs> um, then it could yeah. even be putting that person behind your back, right? Like not right. in any way denying right. that what they did and the significance of it, but recognizing that there's possibility for new stories to tell, even as that thing yep. will always still be there. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Amber, and a great example. Uh, um, I did I did look at Works of Love when I was writing the book, but it did not much of it made into. There's a little bit about repentance in there from Works of Love, but but I 
I, you know, if it was still in draft, I'd probably have to revisit and work some of this in because that sounds like a really great example. Um, and I had to say, like, what I was thinking about when you were telling that story of like the person in front of you, I don't know why, but I was just thinking of um, the Doubting Thomas scene and that last, that in, at the end of John and sort of the, the, the appearance of Jesus a week afterwards to Thomas after he had doubted. And there are lots of ways to read what happens between Jesus and Thomas there. Um, but at least in, in the version that you're describing and the, like the context I've been talking about in response to, to Chris's question, I think is, is part of Jesus inviting Thomas to touch his wounds is, is not just to say like, yeah, this, I'm the guy that this happened to, but also this happened. Like this is going to be part of who we are now, whoever we are together now going forward this is going to be part of it. So we need to, we need to touch it. We need to feel it. It's, it's part of our future together. Um, uh, because I think typically that's right. as sort of like proof, proof that this is the real Jesus and not some ghost, but there's also that thing about like, we have to tell the truth about the past. That doesn't mean that we can't live new life. We can, but we have to tell the truth about the past. Um, yeah. And there was something about, I mean, I, that's different, obviously than what you were saying about like setting aside or setting behind in order to set something behind, or set it aside, you have to know it, that it's there. You have to know that what you're setting aside or setting behind. You have to understand what it is in order to understand that it's an obstacle. And I think that part of it, I think, is, is the truth-telling part. That is the sort of mourning part of saying, here is the thing that our future must be built upon, whether we like it or not. So how do we build that now? Where do we put this block so we can build something upon it, either behind to the side or whatever? I think that's so important that and I think maybe even Kierkegaard's account needs to be clarified that when we put something behind our back, it's not like, ah, oh, it's in the past. Like I left it back right. there it's right. as if it doesn't affect me today. I don't bring any of those pieces with me or that has not affected me in the sense that it shapes who I am today. Um, I think that's really important to say we can actually tell the truth about the past, but that there are many new stories to tell. And, and I wonder if this is sort of what you're getting at in your, I think it's your last chapter or your later chapter on resurrection, that it's precisely because of the newness of life in the resurrection that we could actually say there are still new stories to tell. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, that, that you put it pretty well. I think, I think that that is the way I want to think about resurrection, that, that um, it's only if the tomb is empty that we have to imagine ourselves in the place in the myth of the ministry of Jesus, right? It's only because his, it's only because of his absence and the reality of what has been lost that we can start to imagine what we build in that place. The loss is the condition, right? The loss is real. We can't pretend there hasn't been the loss. And that doesn't mean that we, that we lose relationship with Jesus in a, in a fundamental way, because that's the nature of resurrection. We remain in relationship. We remain in relationship with God and with God and Christ. And with Jesus, but like, unless we also take the loss part seriously, we're actually not taking responsibility for what is now ours to build. What is our new story to tell? And the story of the church that we need to tell has to be one. And I think this is something that the, the early Christians got really, really got, which is why we have the stories left over that we have. Whatever story the church is going to tell has to be built upon a really frank description of what happened and what was lost and what we did wrong and how we failed before we go forward.
Well, Reverend Dr. Potts, this has been a fantastic conversation, such an interesting way of thinking about forgiveness. Really appreciate the way that you've you've drawn out this notion of non-retaliatory action, disassociating it from anger and these sorts of things and how we feel. I think this is wonderful. And I hope people will check out your book, Forgiveness, an Alternative Account with Yale University Press. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. Thanks for having me.